Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today. So excited to be here with you. You know, each of us has giftings. You know, we have talents that are innately within us, but then we also have training. You know, we have the things that we've learned, maybe even the job that you worked before you became an entrepreneur or the job you're currently working, looking at becoming an entrepreneur. Either way, you know, those are the kind of things that shape us in a way that is so powerful and so useful for the people that we're meant to serve. And I think a lot of times we discount it. We see, you know, amazing people like a Tony Robbins who has been doing it since they were 18. Um, and we miss all of the life lessons that they've learned and the experiences that they've had because they make it look so easy. So today I want to talk about taking the experiences that you've had, especially from work that you've done, and using it to help others, to help them advance, succeed, get through, be better, do better, know better. Um, it's a really powerful opportunity for us today to be able to really look at what are the things that I've learned thus far in my life and more so in the jobs that I've had, whether it be, you know, you were a delivery driver for Domino's Pizza or maybe these days Instacart, or you were the, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 100 company. What are the skills that you developed doing that job that you can now bring to what you really are meant to do in the world and make others advance? Help them be better people because you just simply bring all that you are to the table. You show up powerfully and you make a difference. Doesn't that sound like an amazing way to live as a thriving entrepreneur? I think it does. And I'm looking forward to these three guests. We're going to go through them quickly again today. No commercial breaks, just some really great guests to let you learn how to be a thriving entrepreneur. Join me in welcoming Galen Hare. Hey, Galen, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Steve? I am good. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. <laughs> well, I don't know how I show up in the world, but I am a property casualty attorney. I do first party property casualty, which is really fancy speak for I help people whose homes or businesses have been affected by a natural disaster when their insurance company doesn't treat them fairly. Ooh, well, that sounds uh, like all too often. We'll leave it at that and not say anything bad about the insurance industry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, how does a person even know when they're being treated fairly or not? Yeah, so unfortunately, the short answer is they probably aren't being treated fairly, but the basic like baseline kind of gut check is have they paid me enough to rebuild without dipping into my home pocket um you may know that inherently just in your gut you may have to do some research to figure that out in our experience about 90 percent of claims are underpaid and you uh mostly work with home insurance claims or you do auto as well or what kind of stuff do you do so we don't do auto, we do buildings. So we do homes and we do businesses. Um, but anything that, if there's a physical structure on the ground going up into the air, we we help it out. Um, the only thing we don't do are cars or things like that. What about, um, you know, like businesses that have, you know, they don't own the building, they're renting the space. Do you Do you work with them? Yeah, same thing. As long as damage occurred to the building itself, even if they don't have 
the ownership of the building, they likely have business interruption coverage or something that would be triggered by damage to the building or the things inside of it. And that would be an area where we would be able to help out. Oh boy, have I got a fun story for you to get to talk about this one. All right, so a few years ago, we owned a retail shop um, and we were the main floor of a building that had, you know, other stories above it. And one cold wintry evening, the pipes burst in the bathroom in the unit above us and poured down into everything, you know, it was a retail shop. So poured down into and on everything we had in the store to the point where the only reason why we knew it is because someone walking by the store uh, literally tripped and almost fell on the ice that had formed from that much water pouring out underneath of the door. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I hear that story a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know, so you call and the claims adjuster comes out. Um the store was actually, if you're familiar with the movie Twilight, um, you know, it was a Twilight memorabilia store. Um, and the guy is mumbling to himself about how much he hated that particular movie. And now here he is stuck having to have to go through all of these things for this stupid movie. So, um, and I'm sure you felt like you were going to be treated really fairly, right? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and that's that's kind of the inherent problem, right, is that we're all human and we bring our own biases, we bring our own feelings, we bring our own emotions to anything we do. But an insurance company doesn't. So what you typically get are the worst of both worlds, right? If the adjuster really, really hates you or hates, in this case, Twilight, you might not get a fair shake. He might not be looking out for you. If on the other hand, he got out there and he's a major team Edward or team Jacob kind of guy, right? And this is his jam. And the carrier senses that he's writing maybe too aggressively or too fairly for you, that will get tempered back down. So it's almost like there's these safeguards in place that work one way, but not the other way. How did you do? Did you end up getting everything you needed? Yes and no, you know, I mean, and part of I'm sure of what you deal with every day is the fact that I don't know anybody that has even a really good insurance policy that really knows what they're supposed to be getting versus what they did get, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's part of the problem, right? I hate that hesitation that I hear in your voice because I hear it any time when I say, well, how are you treated? Were you treated fairly? I almost always either hear no or I hear, uh, yeah. And, and I think to myself, well, why is there hesitation there? If you were treated fairly, you should know you were treated fairly. But the reality is there's always that hesitation because you were told something wasn't covered. You were told they were only going to pay on a certain basis. And you just don't know whether that's true or not. You know, I mean, ultimately, after quite a lot of work and struggle, way more than you would have thought it should have been, um, you know, ultimately we did get a check and we had to move to a whole nother facility because as you can imagine that much water damage, the building needed, you know, the, the building owner also, you know, had to do an insurance claim and had to do a major remodel um, that involved pretty much replacing, uh, you know, the floor ceiling, uh, you know, of a building, you know, an old building too. So that was a lot of fun for him, I'm sure. But, you know, so like you said, we did get a check, but you never really are quite sure, um, you know, is this really what the check should have been? How much should I really get reimbursed for the time that I wasn't opened and the fact that I've got to move and, you know, I have to buy all new inventory and, and all that stuff as well. You know what I mean? No, 100%. And that's what people struggle with. So when someone has a claim, I mean, my advice is to get someone involved that handles claims for a living because you're just not in a position to do that analysis to figure out whether you're being, being treated fairly. Some things are cut and dry, right? I mean, there's a vandalism claim 
they come in and they spray paint all over my walls. I know what it's going to cost to repaint my walls, but a lot of things are not that cut and dry. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're talking about, you know, cause most all of ours were, um, you know, like artwork type of stuff. So they were somewhat subjective based on, uh, you know, they were mostly fan made, you know, so based on, what is the person who made it willing to part with it to us and then sell it versus what should it really be worth? You know, what would it be worth to go out to a, you know, just normal vendor and buy, uh, you know, replacement products that, you know, would be at normal par value versus the, you know, the considerably cheaper value we got them from because, you know, the fan was so excited about the fact that they could share their, stuff with the world if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah the emotional value and, and this happens all the time with with even personal home losses right the emotional value of something may be just so much higher than what the insurance company considers to be the market value of that thing and we have to cope with that in some states we can help tap into that emotional value in some states we can't but even in those states there are things sometimes we can do to increase the emotional value, uh, increase the market value to get closer to that emotional value. What would it cost to go replace that? Not just to purchase it, to go find it, right? If this is a hand-me-down, well, you can't just buy it online. You'd have to go back to this little town from this vacation. You might have to stay out there. You might have to shop in antique shops for three days. What's the value of that, right? So it's a lot more than just what you purchase it for. So we can help out sometimes, but it gets a little harder. And we always have to be careful to try to, A, temper our clients' expectations about the emotional value, but B, to work really hard against the insurance company to get a fair payment for that. So, you know, and stuff like that, because they're so traumatic too, you know, so it's not like, you know, you're in the best headspace when something like that happens to a building, whether it be your personal house, or your business or what have you. Um, but uh you work in all 50 states then? Pretty close. Um, I don't think I'm suited for Alaska at the moment. But uh, yeah, we pretty much have someone that either is licensed or we have what we call local counsel in just about every state. And so if I, if I heard you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I heard you correctly, basically with as much uh, mental attention as you give to it through a trauma, what you really should do is contact somebody like yourself, your company, um, right at the, should they contact you before or just after they in, contact their insurance company or kind of just walk me through a, let's create a process now while this isn't happening. So you pretty much have it on the refrigerator as a to-do list if something like that ever happened. Yeah, so we get hired a lot when it's kind of really far down the road. We can still get some pretty decent results, I think, and even some great results. However, the best results we have ever gotten have been when we were involved at the same time or even slightly before the insurance company, because there's this concept called setting reserves, which is an insurance company setting aside some amount of money to pay the claim. They don't tell you what that amount of money is, okay? but it kind of serves as this artificial cap on what they're going to pay you. And it's calculated sometimes automatically, sometimes subjectively. There's a lot of factors that go into it. So one of the things we do is try to get involved very, very early on so we can set the carrier's expectations appropriately. So once we've walked them through their process, they have sufficient funds set aside to pay their claim. And I know what you're thinking, well, insurance companies have plenty of money. It's not about whether they have the money to pay the claim, it's whether they've appropriately set aside money to pay that specific claim. So when a, when a policy is brand new, you know what I mean? Because there's the, you know, you've had the policy forever, you've owned the house for 20 years and never had a claim. Uh, you know, and then there's the, you know, you bought the house yesterday and you paid the initial payment that went with your loan, basically. Um, is there any difference in what's set aside in that case, or is it still pretty much the same amount? 
Yeah, so there's this interesting, a lot of people have insurance through their mortgage company, but that can mean one of two different things, right? Having money that you pay into escrow, you still have regular insurance, just like someone that has their home paid off. If anything, it's a little bit safer because there's less of an opportunity for you to forget to pay your premium, right? Where it gets a little more dangerous is when you don't have insurance paid through escrow, but you still have a mortgage. You get a letter from your mortgage company and they say, well, we're going to buy insurance for you. In most states, that insurance is absolute trash and there's no other way to describe it. Um, that insurance protects the mortgage company, not you. It doesn't look out for you. And when you have, and by the way, there's been allegations in the past for some of these companies paying essentially sales commissions back to the mortgage company for purchasing it. So the mortgage company is making money off of these insurance policies. So they don't really worry about recovering after a loss. So you're, you're kind of left holding the bag with those, what we call forced placed insurance policies. Um, so that's a bad thing. I, I, if I understood your, your question correctly, but if you're just paying into your escrow and your escrow is paying for your policy, that's still probably a policy you purchased or a policy you inherited from the prior owner. So that could, that is a private policy. It's not purchased by your mortgage company. Your mortgage company is just writing the check. And so in the case of, um, and that's good to know about that other one too. I hadn't even thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense too. Um, so in the case of a private policy, um, whether it's day one or 40 years later, the same amount is set aside? Well, when I say set aside, I'm not talking about your limits. And that's probably what most people think when they hear me say set aside. You might have $200,000 policy limits, okay? But a large insurance company might have a rule where they set aside 20000 to pay for a pipe claim. So they've kind of capped your claim at 20,000 before they even looked at the damage. When we get involved early, we kind of submit estimates and things and submit certain paperwork to tell them, hey, you know, 20,000 is probably not gonna be sufficient for this claim. We're thinking closer to 140, right? To get them to adjust those, what we call reserves on the front end. Your limits is the most that they would ever pay contractually, but they're, but they're not even setting aside those limits contractually unless it's like a whole house fire or the fire burns to the ground or the house is completely destroyed um they most likely will not set reserves even close to limits for the majority of disasters when you're talking about a house uh going back to what you were just saying um i think most people think if my house burns to the ground um you know i'll just get a new house but isn't it often the case that you know you may end up with a check but it may not even cover the replacement of that house yeah and you know that's partially because in the united states we're really bad consumers when it comes to insurance we're pretty good consumers on a lot of other things if you go purchase a car you test drive it if you go purchase a house you do inspections right so we are trained that when we make major purchases we do due diligence However, we purchase insurance like we are buying something on Amazon, sometimes even worse than buying things on Amazon. At least on Amazon, some of us are reading reviews before we're clicking add to cart, right? Most people don't even do that on insurance. They don't look at the values. They don't do anything. What happens is they call an agent or they go online. They say, I own a house. That number, as far as those policy limits, a lot of times the agent kind of arbitrarily selects that number. That's not a great thing. And then they give you some options. You can pay this much of a deductible or in a premium, and this is how much your premium will be. A slightly lower deductible and your premium goes higher, a slightly lower deductible than that, your premium goes higher, you pick one, and that's what you have. What we don't do that we should be doing is revisiting our insurance every year and asking ourselves this question. If someone burned my house to the ground and not a thing was left, what would it cost for me to rebuild that house and replace my contents? Obviously, you're not going to be able to exactly calculate that. But I'll tell you, it is not the number that it was five years ago, right? So your insurance, you need to be asking your company to increase your coverage kind of year over year. Mm, that's important, especially when you think about grandma's house or depending on how old you are your mom's house um 
you know, when they got that policy 30 years ago and they've never, you know, they just paid it with their mortgage every, you know, every month for 30 years and they've never touched it. Yeah. And their coverage may have gone up a little bit. Some carriers will automatically raise your coverage year over year. Um, your premium has almost certainly gone up, but you as a consumer need to take the time to make sure that your insurance policy covers what you're concerned about and covers it in an adequate amount. Now, look, for the vast majority of us, we will never need those policy limits. Most of us will not have a whole house loss in our lifetime, but most of us will have an insurance claim in our lifetime or know someone that does. And you will be very glad if you have a whole house loss that you are not out several hundred thousand dollars as a result of not purchasing insurance the correct way. So two things that I've learned, and you can tell me if there's other things that I should have caught that I missed. Number one is check your insurance policy every, every year um, and make sure that it's updated. Probably number zero before number one is find somebody that can actually tell you what you should even have in insurance to begin with that you know really can tell you. Um, and then number two is uh, you know, contact somebody like you if there is a claim coming up, possibly even before you call your insurance company to submit the claim. Does that, what did I miss? No, I think that's right. And I'll, and I'll add this, you know, myself and not just myself, also my competitors, I think we're all pretty good people. We're in this usually for the right reasons. So if you call us and we think you've got a great carrier with a great policy and you're going to be treated fairly, we're not going to try to get you to hire us. We're going to tell you what to look out for and give you free advice to make sure that you're, you kind of go on your way with the right information and know what to come back to us with if you see. So don't be hesitant to get someone, a professional involved, because if they're good at what they do and they care, and I'd suggest that most of the people that do what I do really do care, they're going to look out for you, even if it's not in their financial interest. All right. So somebody that wants to uh, contact you, how would they get in contact with you? Yeah. So we have a phone number. You can call us 24-7 because unfortunately disasters happen 24-7, 844-CLAIM-84. And then we also have a website, www.insuranceclaimhq.com. And we're on all of the social media under that same handle, Insurance Claim HQ. All right. Well, Galen, I really appreciate you spending some time with us here on the show today. Thank you. Look forward to it. Um, it was it was just absolutely fantastic. What a great way to take all that time in law school, all the time practicing law, and now using it to help people be able to get through what may be some of the worst circumstances in their life. What are things that you learned in school? Uh, what is the job that you're maybe currently doing right now? And how could you use that to help advance people that you're meant to serve in the world so that they too can experience success. Something for us to think about as we jump right from this right into our next guest who also has some amazing life experiences that they now use to be able to help us all do better, show up better, and be better in this world. Let's jump right into it. Join me in welcoming Howie Zales. Hey, Howie, how are you doing today? Good, Steve. How about yourself? I am good, thank you. So tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Yeah, um, I'm a retired uh, sports and entertainment camera operator. I spent over 20 years working with NBC Sports and the World Wrestling Entertainment. Simultaneous to that, I, I owned a business in the television production space where we would uh, hire TV crews for sports and entertainment events. Uh, and we still do that on a nationwide basis. And since the pandemic, we, we, we opened up another company where we specialize in live stream productions, anything from sporting events to concerts to corporate uh, meetings, whether it's in-person, hybrid, or completely virtual um, talk shows, entertainment shows, you name it. Uh, we've kind of run the gamut of it. So that brings up a good point. Um, now that we're 
quote unquote, sort of uh, moving out of the pandemic, um, are we moving back more to live things or are you finding that um, you're going to probably keep about as much of that virtual business as you were doing? Yeah, I think that the, the we call it the hybrid slash, uh, you know, the hybrid uh, model is only in its infancy. And what I mean by that is, let's say, you know, you have a big corporate meeting where maybe 3,000 to 5,000 people used to travel to one place globally, you know, uh, now we can have just six or 10 people that really, really need to be there in person, stream the event uh, on, on a global basis and have any participants that may need to be in the event. Uh, we can bring them in virtually, but the need for everybody to travel to one location is, is a thing of the past. So we've all there's so many fun things we could talk about, about, you know, video full pause in, in meetings, especially, but um, what kind of level of quality can a person uh, expect to have out of it, out of an event like that? Yeah. um, The quality, you know, when you hire a company like ours, we bring broadcast quality equipment to, to the event. So we're, we're broadcasting as if it was going to be, if it was going to air on television. Um, and that's the kind of service that we provide. And that's, that's what people can, can expect. How much more expensive is it to have, you know, high level broadcast equipment versus, you know, a little camera on top of your monitor? <laughs> There's definitely uh, a higher cost associated with it, but it, it also, you know, we provide a, a high production value and we can provide um, teleprompting services. So, you know, people don't have to uh, memorize what they're saying. Uh, slide presentations where uh, we can incorporate uh, any sort of PowerPoint presentation that the people that the people want to incorporate in their presentation. Um, we've, we've done anything from, you know, super high-end meetings with uh, five cameras down to just, you know, one person's webcam. So it, it all depends on what, what you're really looking for and, and what the audience is or who the audience is. So if you do it virtually um, and you said you can bring in, uh, key people that don't have to necessarily be there live. They could be at their own location. Do yep. you end up taking cameras conceptually to multiple different locations? We can do that. Or we can, we have these um, contributor kits, we call them. They're high-end gaming laptops with uh, high-end uh, cameras and microphones and ring lights. And we can dial once the computer is connected into the internet, we can connect to that computer. We can focus the camera, white balance, uh, make sure that the camera is properly framed uh, and, and make sure that the audio levels are good. And then um, over the internet, we bring them in into the production and they, that way they can also hear what's going on and be a contributing member as if they were there with the rest of the team. And it doesn't matter where they are in the world, as long as they're connected to the internet. And then we could broadcast this whole event um, over to a website, whether we build it uh, through our uh, web services and our content delivery network, or we just stream it to an existing site, one or the other. So while a remote person on one of those gaming laptops is talking, you have the level that you can actually even um, adjust the camera settings on mm -hmm. the fly like you would if you were there in person? Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, pre it's pretty amazing. We could, you know, z focus the camera, make sure that the eyes are in focus. Uh, it would be like as if they were, they were there. That's pretty awesome because yeah. we've all seen those live streams where, you know, the person's moving around all the time or those kind of things. And the camera is just crazy the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that drives me nuts. Or the books behind the person are in focus and the eyes are, you know, completely blurry. Yeah, that's awful. So let's take just a minute or two here and talk about the things that a person can do themselves that would make them 
you know, stand out a little better just with the equipment they've got? What are some secrets? Yeah, some secrets. Great question. Um, one, make sure you're connected to the internet via Ethernet cable, not Wi-Fi. Um, that way you have a good signal. Uh, and if you are connected through Ethernet, make sure your Wi-Fi and your computer is turned off so it uses the Ethernet signal. Um, you want good quality. You want to be evenly lit, especially if you're going to be using video and presenting and uh, very basic three-point lighting, whether it's uh, a light to the right and left of you, kind of cross-lighting you, and then if you could have one above your head, so you have a little light on your head and shoulders, which separates you from the background. But the most important is two lights in front of you kind of cross lighting you so you have an even look on your face. And then you want a, a, a good camera. You want to be in focus, uh, not out of focus, uh, because that kind of makes you look lose credibility if you don't look good. Uh, and you want a good quality microphone. You, you want to um, make sure that, uh, your levels are good. You're not over, over modulated where it's distorted or you don't have enough level where people can't hear you. Hmm. I love that so much. You know, a lot of times when it comes to even the left and right light, you know, overhead is pretty easy because most people have overhead lights, but, um, I've seen some people do some pretty unique things with what lights they're using on that left and right side for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have, um, you know, obviously from being in the business, I have professional lights where I'm cross lit on each side. And then uh, I have a light that's hanging in my ceiling. It's not a, an overhead light. That's like part of the ceiling. It's a overhead light that I hung that way. The, the colors all match. Um, and then you also want your camera at eye level with your eye eyes. You don't want to be, you know, staring down at your computer and the camera's looking up at you. So it's shooting underneath your chin. You want to be like eye level with the camera. I love that. Um, I was dealing with one the other day that, uh, I, you know, cause usually I'm just doing radio interviews like this, but I was mm -hmm. reading a script and the nature of most computers the cameras at the top mm -hmm. and then you know if you've got a document you're reading from it's below the camera are there any tricks to i mean other than of course going out and getting another monitor so you have your you know so you have your head up higher are there any tricks to being able to do that so that it looks good and it doesn't just look like your head's down and you're reading yeah we have an an awesome solution for that especially when we do uh remote interviews and things like that we have a uh, we can use a teleprompter, especially when there's a script involved, we can use a teleprompter operator and he or she can be in his or her home or their office. Uh, we send them the script and over the internet, we put, put the script on the person's computer that we're, uh, that's in our production. And through the piece of software, we put it literally right underneath the camera lens. So it looks as if the person's looking into the camera, but they're actually reading. And if you keep the computer screen far enough away, you can't see the eyeballs, you know, going left and right to, to reading. And the person, the teleprompter operator uh, through, through our software can hear the person speaking so they know how fast, how slow to, to move, move the words. So even the concept of moving that Word document or whatever you're reading from way up on top of the page and, yep. you know, and keeping it scrolled up, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's cool. See, I, I learned something already. <laughs> um, so what's the most fun for you? What kind of events do you like doing just the most? Yeah, the, the, you know, I come from a sports background and I've, I've traveled the world. I've I've done Super Bowls, Kentucky Derbies, WrestleManias, some of the biggest events there are. But, uh, you know, the live stream world has proved to be like a, a really technically challenging uh, uh, industry. And it, it's, it's a lot of fun. We, we've had great fun doing concerts and cooking shows. And one of the uh, most fun events we've, we did was um, an award show for, for little leaguers. We did um, 
10 boys and girls and we did two separate shows one for the boys and girls had a home run derby contest as part of the little league world series and they were they had to hit a certain amount of home runs in a certain amount of time and we videotaped them hitting these home runs and then we played back all of their hits and at the end of the show um a major league baseball player handed out handed out over uh, an award for the home run derby champion and we did a boys and girls show so that was pretty cool to watch these kids reaction and um uh, it, it was special mm, that sounds like a lot of fun so you've been a camera operator and overseen camera operations for a really long time um, if it's not unfair to ask, what's your pet peeve? What is the thing that people do on camera that just drives you crazy? That, <laughs> uh, that, that they, you know, either in a sports world or like in the live stream world. Let's go with live stream because, you know, we probably don't have a lot of professional athletes yeah. that are listening. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think people don't show up, um, you know, you you need to present yourself and you need to look good. If you're not properly lit, you don't have a good camera and you're out of focus, that drives me crazy. Um, and it it really just requires a minimal investment and just a little pre-planning. And if you need to be on at a certain time, show up 10 minutes early to make sure all of your equipment works. Hmm, I love that. So um, what how would people work with you? How can they get in contact with you and what kind of uh, people would you like to work with? Yeah, uh, you, you can reach me at howiesales.com and our family of websites is all there. Uh, uh, and our company, Veridity Entertainment, uh, veridityentertainment.com does, uh, produces uh, live stream events. And we, we can help with the full production of the show from uh, a run of show to creation of graphics, to editing uh, video uh, pieces of tape that go into the production. Uh, we can help with any, any sort of scale of show um, from the beginning to end. We've worked with big corporations doing, you know, $200,000 events to smaller, you know, just corporate interviews that were completely remote. I won't hold you to it, but if a person's doing a um, online, you know, like what we used to go to, but now they're doing an event, um, doing it online, what would something like that approximately cost? Like I said, I won't hold it, hold you to it. Yeah, well, it, it all depends. Like how, how many people um, need to be on camera at a time? How many cameras do we need to bring? It, it's like so each, each event is so tailored and so specific to that event that it's hard to give, you know, just throw out a number of what it costs. It literally can be a $200,000 uh, job to 5,000. It, it really all depends on the scale and the type of event uh, that somebody wants or needs. Um, and one thing we're doing right now, which is really cool, which is the wave of the future, I think is we're actually creating uh, TV networks or web networks for people and influencers and businesses. And instead of relying on social media, like Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram for your followers, we say, drive your followers from those platforms to your website. Let us house all of your video content through our content delivery network. And we can create a web presence on your current website or create uh, a new website and use video uh, and audio to, you know, engage with your audience. How did you don't really, own, you don't really own all your followers. If you rely strictly on the social platforms, the platforms own your followers, but if you're actually driving the followers to your website and you drive the video content from uh, the content delivery network to your website, now you own your followers, you control your own advertising, not YouTube. How um, comparable, comparable, can't talk, um, is the pricing for your content delivery network versus, you know, a Vimeo or those kind of things that people are familiar with? Yeah, no, it's right, right alongside the same sort of price. It's just that your, uh, we, 
the and the beauty part of it is instead of it being YouTube or Vimeo, we can private label the player so it doesn't say Vimeo or YouTube or it has the color scheme or the logo of your business and um, all of the content is you know on demand. We can live stream it. Um, whatever whatever somebody needs we can provide that, that type of service through our content delivery network so then if a person is for example a youtube influencer um is there a way for them to go from your content delivery network over to youtube versus the other way around yeah yeah we can we can stream or we can stream to youtube as well and also house the video as a vod video on demand which is accessible through YouTube as well. And the best part is we can provide the analytics uh, if the video was watched uh, on, on any of those social platforms. Well, it sounds like to me, Howie, that if a person wants to do video, it would be totally worth their while to go to howiezales.com, um, schedule a conversation with you and see what they should be doing that they're probably not. Absolutely. Well, Howie, I really appreciate you taking some time to be here on the show with us today. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. We looked at the things you learned in school and that have now practiced in the world. Then we looked at the career success that you had and how you can bring those to make the world a better place. And the last thing that I'd like to cover here as we're talking today is the ability to be able to take the innate who you are to the world, bring it to the plate and really be able to show up as someone who does amazing things for others and helps them advance as they show up as the best of them and you show up as the best you in the world. With that said, let's talk to our last guest. Join me in welcoming Heather Dominic. Hey Heather, how are you doing today? Great, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here today. Absolutely. Glad to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Well, I think probably the simplest uh, explanation is I am a highly sensitive entrepreneur and leader who mentors and trains other highly sensitives to also be successful entrepreneurs and leaders. So let's start off with some basics. Uh, because I want to make sure that we're defining the words the same way. Um, by sensitive, I'm assuming you're not meaning somebody who, uh, when we were kids, we used to call them crybabies. <laughs> what do you mean when you use the word sensitive? Yes. So the phrase highly sensitive, first of all, is not a phrase coined by me. It comes from research that stems primarily starting around the mid-1990s. There's one woman in particular who is most known for her research because she wrote the book, The Highly Sensitive Person, and her name is Dr. Elaine Aaron. The brief explanation of what we mean when we say highly sensitive is a person who is born with a nervous system that's wired to take in stimulation at a much higher degree than someone who's not highly sensitive. So what, if anything, is the difference between a sensitive and an empath? a great question. So the way that I like to describe it is you can think of a spectrum. And uh, on that spectrum is, first of all, all of us to some degree have some, some sort of sensitivity. The higher you go on the spectrum, then you will meet that place of what it is to be a highly sensitive. And then you go even further on that spectrum and then you'll meet that place of what it is to be an empath. But a highly sensitive definitely hold some of the same traits and attributes as an empath, but probably most likely at just a different degree. So an empath being somebody who 
literally can almost, if not totally can feel the feelings of, a, of another person. A sensitive is just somebody that's very intentionally and keenly aware of the feelings of another person. Is that a good, simple definition? <laughs> That is a good, simple definition. Yes. I mean, I like to refer to, for those of us who are highly sensitive, I talk about having our top 12 highly sensitive shadows and our top 12 highly sensitive strengths. And one of those strengths is absolutely empathy. And another strength is intuition. So those are examples of ways that we share those qualities with someone who's an empath. And yet your explanation is absolutely beautiful. So for a person who's a sensitive, but now they're also an entrepreneur, you know, now they've got a staff of people um, and, and correct me totally if I'm wrong here, but, uh, you know, being, well, being too much of an empath, so I don't know if it's fair, <laughs> um, you know, the problem once we start getting employees is, for lack of a better term, we care too much. Do you know what I mean by that? Sure, absolutely. How do we deal with that? Right. So this is so much of, you know, where the work that I do comes in and exactly what we teach in the highly sensitive leadership training programs. And it really comes down to learning how to manage your highly sensitive nervous system. So you want to go through the process of learning to use your nervous system as a tool to work for you rather than necessarily against you. And then we're back in those shadows versus strengths. As you really do train your nervous system to be that intentional tool for you, that really supports you in being able to work effectively with other people, whether that's your client or if like you're describing, you decide to bring on a team. And then that quote unquote caring too much can really shift from more of that shadow space of say over responsibility um, for another person and their feelings into that strength space of being able to use empathy as a, a really a valuable and effective leadership skill. So how do we, I mean, obviously you teach a whole course on it, so you can't teach us all of us in the next, you know, five, 10 minutes, but what are some secrets to being effective while still keeping our sensitivity? Yes, absolutely. So it really is about what I like to refer to as developing core practices. So I, you know, say that like three of the, the solid pillars or foundation to creating success as a highly sensitive entrepreneur is community, core practice, and consistency. So that core practice piece is you can think about it, you know, say like going to the gym. And if you're going to the gym, you're learning how to build up or strengthen physical muscles. Um, and you do that by going to the gym consistently and, and building those muscles over time. So it's really very, very similar when it comes to, again, learning how to manage and hone your nervous system. You want to be using tools consistently and developing core practices that allow you to strengthen that that skill, and then also to develop a different relationship with your nervous system. And as you do, then literally you start to feel and experience a change in how you react or even, you know, more, more pro proactively respond in situations that previously were, you know, most likely triggers um, and, and caused reactions that didn't work for you. Okay. Yeah. I love that. So 
what is the biggest piece of that that you think people struggle with? When it comes to the core practice? Yeah. Well, again, that's really why I speak to those three pillars of community, core practice, and consistency, because I would say absolutely across the board, and I've you know, been, been mentoring other highly sensitive entrepreneurs for over a decade now, and consistency is a challenge. Right. So um, what I attribute that to is when we're untrained as highly sensitives, we become very accustomed to feeling as if the world is happening to us. So we develop uh, what I refer to as, you know, various HSE, highly sensitive entrepreneur coping mechanisms. And we default to those coping mechanisms to just, you know, be able to kind of keep ourselves going, right? And to, to have a sense of safety. And part of what that then uh, affords us is that kind of scattered experience because we're just reacting and we're just coping. Um, so it's almost as if we don't have control. So that impacts our ability to show up consistently. So that's, again, really what I've just seen, you know, over and over and over. But once you are in an aligned and supportive community, you're um, working with tools to really, again, you know, really develop those core practices, then consistency becomes more of rather than something that feels like it's happening to you, it becomes something that supports you in being able to literally create what you want for yourself. And so that's one of the things that I, you know, often speak about as well is that in that process of highly sensitive leadership training, we shift from only coping into that space of creating. And one, that's absolutely needed, you know, as, as an entrepreneur. But two, it's also one of our strengths. It's one of the top 12 strengths. So we actually really thrive within that space of creativity. And the two can go together, creativity and consistency. Mm, I love that. Um, share with me some successes that you've had with people who were really struggling with their sensitive nature and after working with you, you know, where did they end up? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's just so many stories. <laughs> um, so, I mean, one that, you know, often comes to mind is uh, a woman who, you know, would, you know, be considered older. I think probably when she and I first connected, she was maybe in her late 50s. And we just happened to, to meet at a, a small, intimate, um, in-person event at the time. And um, I was giving a workshop and she just came up to me afterwards and was in tears, just like tears, just sobbing. And this was a woman who is very, is very, very well educated. And that tends to also be something that we share as highly sensitives, right? We love to learn, we love to study. And yet we also have this drive when we're untrained to just get one more certification, one more degree, one more class, one more course to try to have ourselves feel as if we are equipped enough, always eluding what actually needs to be given attention. Uh, but point being is that this woman was very, very well educated, including a PhD, knows her field very, very well, but just, just had done what, what felt to her like everything to be able to try to get a business off the ground and couldn't do it. Um, just was not enrolling the clients, was not generating the income. Um, now she has uh, a consistent full practice. Um, she's doing the work that she really feels that she's called here to do. Um, income is consistent and sustainable. She's brought herself into a place where she is paying herself a salary, um, always has, you know, a profit, a really healthy net, and is able to like take time off, travel with her husband, and 
yeah, just really like fully in her heart and in her purpose. And, you know, there's so many others who are very, very similar to, to this one particular highly sensitive entrepreneur that I've described. And I think really ultimately that's it. You know, one of the things that I say a lot is that for those of us who are highly sensitive, you know, being an entrepreneur is a calling and it's a calling of service. And it literally is as if there is a, a hole that we're here to fill through the strengths that we have. And when we're not able to fulfill that purpose, it, it, it creates such chaos because it's not just about, um, you know, having a successful business or, or, you know, serving a certain bottom line it literally is as if it is soul fulfillment. And uh, one of the other things that I say is that if it wasn't that, why would we do it? Right. Because otherwise it just feels like it's a setup for torture. Um, and that's what it feels like when you're a highly sensitive, you just can't quite get that business off the ground. But the minute you learn how to just go about business differently in a way that works for your nervous system, then, you know, you can have that experience of, of, of that success story that I just described. And, and there's just, again, such a settling within oneself of like, ah, okay, yes, now, now I'm doing what I was brought here to do. I love that. So for everybody that's listening, that's saying, that's me, that's me. How can I work with you, Heather? How can they work with you? Well, I would say go to www.businessmiracles.com. So again, that's businessmiracles.com. Um, you'll see a, a great starter kit there, uh, my gift to you, that really has to do with that shifting from coping to creating and and that's a, a great first step, a great place to begin. Well, Heather, that is such great stuff. So much more to dig into it, but it's a great start. Thank you so much for being a guest with us today on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. What are the things that are innately part of who you are? The person that you are, the skills that you have, the training that you got in school and in life, and how can you bring those to the table to make this world a better place, to really truly serve and help the people that you were meant to serve. What are the ways, what are the things that you could do that would make such a powerful, impactful difference in the person that you're meant to serve? How could you do that? How could you bring that to the table today and show up as a thriving entrepreneur in that space? Because you are uniquely brilliant you were created for a purpose and the world needs you. Now here's something I can tell you. For all of us, it's hard for us to read. In fact, it's impossible for us to read the label that's on the outside of the jar that we live in. And we need somebody to step in and help us see the information, even the map that's on the outside of that jar. I love to help you with that. If you go to AskSteveKid.com, I'd love to sit down with you, talk to you for free over the phone, and let's see what we can do to help you show up powerfully in this world and make the difference that only you can make as you live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com, schedule a talk with Steve, 
believe. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. You